You in danger, girl. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's February, and we're feeling a little romantic, so we thought we would talk about Ghost. That's right. It's kind of a tradition for us to talk about kind of a romantic-y horror adjacency, you know, every February. I think we started that trend, I think, with Fatal Attraction back right. in uh, mm-hmm. uh, February of 2019. What did we cover in 2020? Bram Stoker's Dracula. <sighs> Love never dies. That's right. And now we have Ghost. And uh, this was a blast from my past. And you know how much I like to have my past blasted. I know. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? I mean, for real. I had not seen this movie since I was like 13 years old. So like tween Robert. It's like a bukkake of flashback for me. <laughs> that was incredibly descriptive. So uh, shall we take this romantic trip down memory lane? We shall. Ghost is the 1990 American romantic fantasy thriller film, that's a mouthful, directed by Jerry Zucker, written by Bruce Joel Rubin, and starring Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg, Tony Goldwyn, and Rick Aviles. The plot centers on a young woman in jeopardy, the ghost of her murdered lover, and a reluctant psychic who assists him in saving her. Ghost is the first film Jerry Zucker directed on his own. He had previously been part of the Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker directing team, known for their screwball comedies such as Airplane and Top Secret. Zucker has said that the choice to direct the film was not made to distance himself from comedies or to mark a new chapter in his career, but was just looking for a good film to direct. Screenwriter Bruce Rubin, who also wrote Jacob's Ladder, Brainstorm, and Deep Impact, was initially worried about Zucker helming his work, because he was afraid Zucker would turn his early darker drafts into a comedy. Rubin noted that he wanted to tell a ghost story from the ghost's perspective. He said, One day, I was watching a production of Hamlet, which begins with the ghost of Hamlet's father asking for revenge. I thought, wow, let's transpose that into 20th century. It'll be an interesting story. The two would collaborate on multiple drafts, and while some comedic moments were added, Zucker's main contributions were centered around increasing the story's pacing, as his time spent directing comedies gave him a keen sense of timing. Listeners, you and Danger Girl, this is Ghost. What's the matter? Seems like, uh, whenever anything good in my life happens, I'm just afraid I'm going to lose it. I really love you. What do you want? something you gotta move it with your mind <laughs> Molly why can't you hear me who is that you can hear me can you hear me Sam Wheat Please. say my name say it leave me alone hello I get a message from Sam what Sam Wheat he asked me to call once you go to police he said it was a setup he was murdered she said Sam knew who killed him are you out of your mind? I mean, what are you going to tell the police? She knew things, private things. I know about the green underwear that you wrote your name on. Well, this psychic woman's got a record that goes back a long way. 
Don't you see I'm not a fake? I don't know what's real anymore. Don't open him. Don't open the damn door. He's a murderer. Why are you doing this to me? Do you hear me? Why are you doing this to me? Sam's dead. Tell her I love her. He says he loves you. Sam would never say that. You gotta take all your anger, all your love, all your hate, and then let it explode. Molly? Molly, you in danger, girl. Sam Wheat, played by Patrick Swayze, a Wall Street banker and his artist girlfriend, Molly Jensen, played by Demi Moore, have purchased and are now renovating a Manhattan apartment with the help of Sam's friend and co-worker, Carl Bruner, played by Tony Goldwyn. They find an old penny in a jar, which Sam tells Molly is a good omen for their new apartment. One night, while in bed, Molly questions Sam about his mood, having been stressed about his job at the bank, and asks if he regrets moving in with her. He assures her that he doesn't, and when she says she loves him, he replies, Ditto. Later that night, Sam gets out of bed to find Molly making pottery. She teaches him the finer points of the pottery wheel to the tune of Unchained Melody, before making sweet yuppie love. Later, back at the office, Sam tells Carl that he has found that several of his clients' accounts have way too much money in them. Carl offers to help with the problem, but Sam refuses. Later that night, after an off-Broadway production of Macbeth, Sam and Molly walk down the street and end up discussing their relationship and the possibility of marriage. Molly asks Sam why he never directly says that he loves her. He only ever says ditto. Before he can answer, they notice that they are being followed. Sam turns to confront the pursuer, but the man attempts to mug him. They fight, and a gunshot goes off in the kerfuffle. The mugger runs off, and Sam chases after him. He starts back to Molly, but finds her cradling his body in the street. While looking down upon his own dead body, a brilliant white light shines on him, but he turns from it and heads back to Molly and his body as help finally arrives. At the hospital, Sam watches as doctors tell Molly that he's dead, and an elderly ghost, awaiting the death of his wife, explains that Sam, too, has become a ghost. Sam spends his days hanging around Molly, wishing that he could comfort her through her grief. One night, Sam realizes that their cat can sense him, and Molly believes for a moment that she can too. Later, Carl comes over to help Molly by going through Sam's personal things, and both Sam and Carl scoff at the things she wants to save, like Rolaids and his address book. Carl convinces Molly to go for a walk to get her mind off things, and while they're out, Sam sees his murderer enter their apartment. He watches him search through the apartment and eventually watch Molly undress after she returns. Looking for anything that he can do to protect Molly from his murderer, Sam scares the cat, who jumps and scratches the murderer's face. He flees, and Sam follows him onto the subway, where Sam is confronted by a very angry ghost, played by Vincent Chiavelli, who has the ability to interact with physical objects. Sam continues to follow his killer to his apartment, where he learns that his name is Willie Lopez, played by Rick and that someone has hired him to steal something from Sam. Back outside in the killer's neighborhood, Sam follows the sound of loud gospel music to the storefront of a so-called psychic, Oda Mae Brown, played by Whoopi Goldberg. 
Sam watches her attempt to swindle a poor widow, and Odame becomes terrified when she realizes that she can hear Sam talking. Knowing that she is his only chance to communicate with Molly, he pesters Odame until she agrees to pay Molly a visit in order to warn her. At their apartment, Odame tries to convince Molly that she's legit by reciting personal information to her, fed by Sam, but Molly becomes angry and rebuffs her. Sam tells Odame to tell her he loves her, but Molly refuses to believe her because Sam would never say that. Molly changes her mind, however, when Sam tells her to say ditto to Molly. Odame tells Molly that Sam was murdered and that she is in danger herself. You in danger, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Odame is spooked, however, when she learns that Sam's killer, Willie, lives in her neighborhood. Odame leaves Willie's address with Molly, vowing that her involvement is finished, and nopes herself right out of the situation. Molly gives the address to Carl, who attempts to persuade her that Odame is a crook. Unconvinced, Molly goes to the police, who can't produce a file on Willie Lopez, but they do have a rap sheet on Odame about a mile long. Later, Sam follows Carl to Willie's apartment, where he learns that Carl was the one who hired Willie to steal Sam's key in order to get his address book containing computer passwords. Carl has been using his position at the bank to launder money for drug dealers. Carl uses Sam's key to get the address book and the codes he needs to complete his illegal transaction. Sam watches as Carl transfers the stolen money into an account for a fictitious person named Rita Miller, but Sam has a plan of his own. Sam hunts down the subway ghost who accosted him earlier and is eventually convinced to instruct Sam on how to physically interact with the world around him. He returns to Odame, who has now become a busy hub of spiritual activity. He watches as a ghost takes over her body in order to speak to a loved one, much to Odame's disgust. Suddenly, Willie shows up at Odame's place and attempts to kill her, but she escapes. In order to protect her and prevent Carl from succeeding at his scheme, Sam convinces Odame to go to the bank, pose as Rita Miller, and close the fake account before Carl can finalize the transactions. Odame is almost caught by Molly, who is visiting the bank, but makes out with a cashier's check for $4 million, which Sam forces her to donate to a couple of nuns panhandling for charity. Carl is horrified when he finds the account has been closed, and Sam makes his presence known by typing his name over and over on a computer. After all, all work and no play makes Sam a dull boy. Panicked, Carl rushes to Molly, who tells him that she saw Odame closing an account at his bank. Not knowing she has already given away the money to greedy nuns, Carl and Willie head to ambush Odame and her sisters. But, using his newfound abilities, Sam terrorizes Willie out into the street where he flees, directly in front of an oncoming bus. Willie dies and becomes a ghost. Sam watches as shadowy figures rise from the shadows in the street and drag Carl's spirit to hell. Sam and Odame race to Molly's apartment in order to warn her of Carl's impending attack. Molly is finally convinced of the truth when Sam levitates a penny to her from underneath the door, which Odame tells her is for luck. Fully realizing the situation, Molly and Sam communicate through Odame that they wish they could touch each other one last time. Odame allows Sam to take over her body so Sam and Molly can share one last dance to Unchained Melody. Suddenly, Carl breaks into the apartment, and Sam is abruptly thrown from Odame's body. Carl chases the women, but Sam is exhausted from the possession and cannot immediately help. Sam recovers and gives chase to find Carl holding Odame at gunpoint, demanding the check. 
Sam bats the gun away and pushes Carl away from Oda May, but he takes Molly hostage instead. Sam attacks Carl again, who tries to escape through a window, pushing a hanging construction hook in the direction he thinks Sam must be. The hook swings back, shattering the window and impaling Carl with glass. Carl's ghost emerges from his body as the shadowy demons come and drag him to hell. Sam asks if the women are alright and realizes that Molly can now hear him. The heavenly light returns and shines on Sam, who knows that it's his time to go. He and Molly share a tearful goodbye and a kiss. He thanks Otome and walks into the light. The End And time goes by. Oh my god. I thought you were about to do a Whitney Houston. <laughs> if time goes by. <laughs> <sighs> so, Ghost was released on July 13th, 1990 on 1100 screens. It opened against a re-release of Disney's The Jungle Book, the Andrew Dice Clay vehicle The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and the hilarious Quick Change. It would gross over $12 million on its opening weekend, but Die Hard 2 would take the top spot in the second week of release. The summer of 1990 was a big time for movies, as there were some heavy hitters and high grossers in the top 20 that week. Other films that held top spots include Days of Thunder, Dick Tracy, Total Recall, RoboCop 2, Pretty Woman, Back to the Future 3, and Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Over the next nine weeks, Ghost would bounce back and forth between the first and second place in the box office. Domestically, Ghost would go on to gross about $218 million, and Box Office Mojo estimates that more than 51 million tickets were sold in the U.S. Ultimately, including international box office numbers, Ghost would earn more than $505 million against a budget of $22 million, becoming the highest grossing film of 1990. Jesus Christ, that's yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> it's like a billion dollars in today's money, yeah. Ghost has a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. It holds an audience score of 80%. The site's consensus reads, Ghost offers viewers a poignant romance while blending elements of comedy, horror, and mystery, all adding up to one of the more enduringly watchable hits of the era. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average of A. That's actually pretty rare. Yeah, I know. The film received mostly mixed reviews, at least originally. Roger Ebert gave the film two and a half stars out of four, regarding the film as no worse an offender than most ghost movies, I suppose. It assumes that even after death, we devote most of our attention to unfinished business here on Earth, and that danger to a loved one is more important to a ghost than the infinity it now inhabits. Wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He was also critical of the film's obligatory action climax, the slow study of the Molly character, and the single best scene in which Sam overtakes Otome's body to caress Molly. He said, In strict logic, this should involve us seeing Goldberg kissing more, but of course, the movie compromises and show us Swayze holding her. Too bad, because the logical version would have actually been more spiritual and moving. I mean, maybe not in 1990 audiences, though, but also they don't kiss there. No, they don't. They just share that dance, right? But there is, like, 
you know, the scene where he takes over her body and it's it's Whoopi's hands touching Demi's, right? And they cut all music, all sound, yep. right? Because test audiences actually started laughing when that was happening because it was so awkward. Oh. And so he removed all sound, all music, and it becomes very touching, like a hold your breath kind of moment. Yeah. And so I think that is a really awesome decision that they made. And I do completely disagree with Ebert here. I can, well, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of... I don't know. I mean, I would have liked to have seen, you know, Whoopi and Demi dancing, right? But, I mean, I agree that I think people would have found that comedic, right? But, I mean, like, that scene where, like, Whoopi's hands are sort of trembling as she goes to touch, you know, her hands, Molly's hands, are just, I mean, it's it's good. It's a good build-up to that. Oh, yeah. Variety called the film an odd creation, at times nearly smothering and arty somberness, at others veering into good, wacky fun. Despite these mixed reviews, Ghost would go on to really clean up during award season. And that's no joke. At the Academy Awards, it won Best Supporting Actress for Whoopi Goldberg and Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Editing, Best Original Score for Maurice Jarre. Is that how you say it? I don't use French. Yeah, I would just say that's how I'd pronounce it. Yeah, and of course, he lost to John Barry's Dances with Wolves, which I think is a better score here, especially since Maurice Jarre had to kind of really base his score off of the Righteous Brothers uh, original song, which was uh, actually wasn't original. It was actually for a different film from mm-hmm. uh, an earlier time by Alex North. But anyway, uh, Best Picture was actually won by Kevin Costner uh, for Dances with Wolves. And honestly, to this day, I still think Mary McDonald should have won Supporting Actress for Dances with Wolves. Regardless of the other awards, Dances with Wolves won. I think Mary McDonald should have won over Whoopi Goldberg that year. Everyone has their, their one moment in the Academy Awards history where they're like, no, you just got it completely wrong and you know, we can't like there's there's moments that I just won't let go. You know, so. I I love that Whoopi Goldberg won. Yeah. I do. I just when I look back and see what she was up against, and it was a tough year. I'll tell I you that. Can't remember. So I mean, I um, there was a lot of big names that year for 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 good things, but the biggest one was Mary McDonald because she did a huge amount of heavy lifting yeah. and physical and mental and vocal work in She's that role. Pretty much the only part of Dances with Wolves that I like, aside from the score. Sure. Yeah. You know, the score is amazing. But yeah, so that's just my two cents there. But yeah, the Academy really responded to it. And so did the BAFTAs. Yeah. At the BAFTAs, it won Best Supporting Actress, and it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Makeup Artist, Best Special Visual Effects. So she got a BAFTA and an Academy Award then. Yep. She got more. And at the Golden Globes, she also won Best Supporting Actress. And of course, the film was nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Uh, It was nominated for Best Actor for Swayze and Best Actress for Demi Moore. Yep. So it was nominated for quite a bit at the Golden Globes. So it also um, was loved at the Saturn Awards. It won Best Fantasy Film, uh, Best Actress for uh, Moore, and Best Supporting Actress, obviously, for Whoopi Goldberg. It was nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Tony Goldwyn, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Music, Best Special Effects. (laughs) And we had to, of course, include the Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critics Association Awards, which it won Best Supporting Actress for. because I didn't know there was a Dallas-Fort Worth (laughs) Film Critics Association Awards. I've only lived here for like 41 fucking years. The film inspired a stage version called Ghost, the musical, in 2011. The pottery wheel scene has been cited as one of the most iconic moments of 90s cinema and has been parodied frequently in many movies and TV shows, such as The Naked Gun 2 and a Half, The Smell of Fear. Which is also funny because it's also a Zazz production. So yeah. literally his brother mm-hmm. directed that and immediately parodied it. So it was great. Wallace and Gromit, A Matter of Loaf and Death and Two and a Half Men. Yep. 
A Hindi Bollywood version of the film was released in 1991 and a Japanese remake was released in 2010. In 2013, Paramount Television announced it would develop a series adaption, although that never really materialized. Yeah, I remember the talk of that television series when they announced it and I was like, ooh, because I hadn't seen Ghost in a very long time in uh, 2013 at that point, but um, it just never happened. I was ready for it, though. Did you see this in the theaters when it came out? Yeah, I did. Um, It would have been, I think, 11? Yeah, I was 11 years old when when Ghost came out. I actually remember this movie going experience pretty well because we saw like a sneak preview, right? And it was the first time in my young life that I knew there was such a thing as that. And I also learned what a double feature was because we got to stick around and watch whatever was going to be showing on that screen anyway. So we got two movies for the price of one. And after watching Ghost... I wonder if it was Jacob's Ladder. I No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, <laughs> the same writer did both and they both came out in 1990. Well, I, I, I don't think it was that. I can't remember what it was, but I remember Ghost vividly. And I remember like this, loving the idea of paying for one movie and seeing two. It was just mind boggling to me and I loved it. Ghost and Fatal Attraction. <laughs> Oh my God. I wish. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Jerry Zucker, right? Because like we said earlier, he was, you know, his films have been ranked among some of the greatest comedies of all time, including airplane and top secret along with ruthless people. And of course, naked gun. I love airplane. Like if I ever want to just like full on laugh, it's something that I will always put on. I just never, I never get tired of airplane ever. No, it's just one of those things, but he's made a lot that are super, super good. And of course, um, a couple of those, I think that had come out before this, before ghost, but this is the first one where he actually directed it himself. Besides, you know, back then they didn't say like the Cohen brothers or whatever. It was, even though it was like a Zaz production, it was either him and his brother or whoever the a was, whatever. (laughs) And then, uh, later on, he actually directed first night, which I still enjoy. Yes. He directed first night. And then later his last film he ever directed, and he's still around. He's in, and his brothers are still making, you know, his brothers are still making movies and stuff. Um, but was Rat Race from 2001 with Whoopi Goldberg and Mr. Bean and a bunch of other, basically every comedy every comedian year. like in the world was basically in that one. It was like a new Mad Men, Mad Mad World. <laughs> I was going to say it's based on that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, essentially. And so anyway, I really enjoyed First Night. So it's like, I feel like First Night is actually less comedic than this than ghost is you know so it's just interesting that he yeah. kind of tried his foray and those are all successful movies i'm just kind of wondering why he stopped after 2001 maybe he just like um i mean he had enough money he didn't need to do it anymore he could bank on the success and the residuals from all these things i haven't seen first night in a long time either probably yeah. since it was released an amazing jerry goldsmith score by the way uh, if I had to pick, though, if I were like to sit down and choose between Ghost and First Night, I'd probably pick Ghost every fucking time, though. Well, so. yeah, because you're a flouncing queer. Yes, that's true. And so am I. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I like me some Richard Gere. Yeah, I was going to be like, if I'm going to pick like a hot guy to watch, I'm like, Richard Gere would be the one. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like Ghost. Yeah. So. So let's get into our cast a little bit, right? And some of the background of the film. Okay. You know, so Patrick Swayze, right? May he rest in peace because I always enjoyed Patrick Swayze. He's a little over the top sometimes, but that's part of his swagger. That's part of his deal. You know, and he and he's one of those people that you actually like see interviews of and and everything else. And he has like no ego. Right. And so he like really is like the super genuine person, you know, and uh 
you kind of get him a little bit more in his movies. Like it's, you shouldn't have to do that with actors, but like with him, it's almost necessary. I don't know. He's so earnest. Well, and to me, when I, when I think back on his career, I don't, I can't remember just a whole ton of movies, right? It seems like he makes a memorable mark when he's in these movies and he has a sort of smaller filmography, right? So we think back on like Dirty Dancing, iconic, obviously, Ghost, right? Tu Wong Fu, Roadhouse, you know, I mean like the- Donnie Darko, like he he played a very thankless job in Donnie Darko and he just, I was like- props to him for playing that role i just i mean i like patrick swayze when i see him in things right especially to wong fu i thought he did a very very good job in that movie mm-hmm. and um you know i think he makes he makes good decisions in the films that he picks right he reminds me a lot of um like hugh jackman i kind of get the same vibe from him sometimes right and i think maybe because like they're both a little artsy right i mean because patrick swayze was a dancer right professionally yeah. And Hugh Jackman is, he's very musical, you know? So, I yeah, know. I get that like Hugh Jackman, maybe a little bit more introverted than Patrick Swayze was. Patrick Swayze was very, very warm. Yeah. You know, I don't know. But speaking of which, uh, screenwriter Bruce Joel Rubin actually wanted Patrick Swayze to play Sam Wheat after he saw an interview Swayze gave, just like I said. So when he brought up his father in the interview, Swayze burst into tears. And so Rubin thought if a macho guy like Patrick Swayze could cry over a loved one, he'd be perfect for his movie. I can see that. I mean, like he does like straddle that line a lot. Mm -hmm. And having seen that interview, uh, Ruben suggested Patrick Swayze for the role. And uh, the makers screened Swayze's movie Roadhouse from 1989. (laughs) But director Jerry Zucker felt that uh, Swayze was completely wrong for the part. Uh, many actors that in- that included like Kevin Bacon, Alec Baldwin, Nicolas Cage, Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, David Duchovny from that oh. early, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, Paul Hogan, who instead what? made almost an angel, <laughs> Kevin Klein, Dennis Quaid, Mickey Rourke, <laughs> John Travolta, Bruce Willis, of course, Demi Moore's husband at the time, who didn't think the film would work, uh. you know, were all offered the part, but all turned it down, feeling that, that playing a ghost would be cheesy, right? So uh, Zucker then allowed Swayze to audition on the insistence of the actor's manager, even though he felt Swayze would blow it. And to Zucker's surprise, Swayze gave a great audition and was cast immediately for the part. So you're telling me that they offered this part to Paul Hogan before Patrick Swayze? (laughs) Crikey. (laughs) Crikey, yeah. But he, he did say, he went on to say later that it was the hardest role he'd ever had to play because he had to act but not participate in the action or be looked at by any of the uh, the other actors in any given scene. Yeah, I mean, I could see how that would be difficult. And I was watching Ghost on this go-around, and I was just like, you know, I think if they were making this movie today, would they would they film it that way, or would they, like, superimpose him over it to make it easier for the actors to, you know... You know, I was thinking that would be a really interesting case study to re-edit this film without him in it. Mm-hmm. So it's more of the perspective. So you just hear him like you hear like almost like from Otome's perspective yeah. or go even further where you don't even hear him and you're just watching the movie, you know, as if, you know, Whoopi Goldberg is talking to no one, you know, it'd be really interesting to see the movie from that standpoint. I feel like it'd be fairly easy to do with today's like in-home, like, you know, video editors that we can get and just download for free sometimes. Well, for sure. And I, I was thinking on this rewatch, um, 
this movie would be like half as long if they didn't have one character just repeating what the other character said. I was just like, <laughs> how in the hell was this movie nominated for so many screenwriting awards when it's just the dialogue being said two times in a row? Because it's because Whoopi Goldberg puts her own, you know, yeah, stank on it. She puts her own spit on it. And it's and she's she's excellent in this movie. But I was just like, oh my God, there's so much repetition. There was so much an iconicness in the delivery of it, too, right? Yeah. It's, it's the magic that happened. And they, the actors came back and said that because they were not sure about this movie, especially Demi Moore, right? And she was like, you know, looking back at it, you know, it's the magic and it's just uh, that happens when you get the right cast with the right chemistry mm-hmm. and the right filmmakers and at the right time. You know? Exactly. And the right time is important too. I mean, this movie was sort of like a lightning strike in 1990. I remember people just going like ape shit for this movie. Yeah. So. But, you know, uh, Patrick Swayze died in 2009 of pancreatic cancer at the age of 57. Yeah, that's far too soon. Yeah. I mean, he he probably he would have had a, a much longer career, I'm sure. So, sad. But we have to talk about Whoopi Goldberg. Do we? We do. Yeah, I know. We certainly have to. We can't talk about Ghost and not spend a good chunk of time talking about Whoopi Goldberg, actually, as Otome Brown. Mm-hmm. Otome Brown. And to this day, Whoopi Goldberg gives Patrick Swayze credit for giving her the role, saying that he wouldn't do it without her. Like, he wouldn't sign. He wouldn't accept it without her. Wow. And upon his death, she said on The View that because of him, she got the movie Ghost. And because of him, she has an Oscar. Which made her an EGOT, right? Yep. I mean, like, she got other rewards down the line, yep. but, like, she certainly needed this Oscar to, like, get that EGOT status, right? Mm-hmm. And Whoopi Goldberg is fantastic in this movie. I mean, she just really is. And honestly, like, Whoopi Goldberg is good all the time. I mean, I see her in movies, and I'm, I'm always impressed with it. I mean, because one of my favorite, like in the top five movies of all time for me is the color purple, right? Which she received an Oscar nomination for best actress. And that was her first movie role ever. Yeah. And that was like eight movies previous to this, right? Jumpin' Jack flash and all all these Mm -hmm. other things were before this. So it's not like she was, you know, a shock to the system. Like, Oh my God, look at this person. Let's give her an award. So something else was around. People just loved this movie enough to, you know, give her the supporting actress uh, noms and, and awards that she got across the system not just the Oscars. Yeah. I mean, so as we talked about in its awards and legacy section, like she really cleaned up when it came to it. There's, there's those years where there's no question as who's going to win things. Right. Cause they were winning award after award after award. And I mean, like sometimes it'll get to the Academy and they will like switch it or whatever. Right. But this is not the case. She really just won every motherfucking thing that she was nominated for. She just swept it all. Yep. And sort of rightfully so. I mean, like she, she's she's good in this movie. She delivers her lines in such a way. I think she wears some iconic things. She really delivers a performance that everybody remembers. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's iconic. But so is Demi Moore as Molly Jensen in this movie. I love Demi Moore, and she kind of had a hard job to do. She was kind of like the emotional anchor of the film, mm-hmm. right? Everything kind of swirling around her. Patrick Swayze's character, Whoopi Goldberg's character, the murderers, like everything's kind of a vortex around her and yet i feel like she doesn't get as much attention for this but it's interesting to me how she got the part because like just like patrick swayze like she was known but she wasn't a big star she was a brat pack member yeah Yeah. right so like the role of molly jensen was actually given to her largely in part because she could cry out of either eye on cue (laughs) and boy does she ever oh my lord so many epic like single tear moments yes 
<laughs> so I told my mom that we were uh, covering ghosts for Valentine's Day, you know, February. And she was just like, oh, with Demi Moore and her crocodile tears. And I was just like, what? And uh, she was like, Demi Moore has the biggest tears I've ever seen in the movie. So that's my mom's big takeaway from Ghosts is like Demi Moore's tears. That's all she could think about. Crocodile tears? I thought crocodile tears meant they were fake. Yeah, I know. I was like, she was misusing that term, obviously. She used to say like really big fucking tears, like I have to say. But yeah, so she was, yeah, my mom was struck by Demi Moore and her crying, obviously. Yeah, I didn't notice the size of her tears. They're big. Probably because I couldn't see them through my own, but... <laughs> <laughs> she got some big tear droplets going on in this movie. Probably because she was in Danger Girl all the time. Well, her and those tears turned her into the highest paid actress in Hollywood at the time. Prior to this film, like, she was a well-known actress, but she wasn't a bankable star. Yeah, I mean, because she was in, like, St. Almost Fire and things like that, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, like, the 90s after Ghost really belonged to Demi Moore. She had things like G.I. Jane, like, huge temple movies that yeah, she Yeah, there was a lot of backlash for because it was, like, too feminist for its time or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then she did striptease and then she just got, you know, raked across the coals. And I don't know why. I really enjoy the movie Striptease. I think and I've seen Striptease more than Ghost. all of this was in the 90s. Yeah. All of it. Like, it sounds like such... It's, like, when I go back and think about Ghost... And then G.I. Jane and striptease are three separate distinct times in my life. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, how teenager years work, right? Like, that's, you know, how time works, I guess, the perception of it. Because uh, she had her comeback yet still like, like, like 2000, 2001 in Charlie's Angels when she made an appearance. Oh, that's right. I mean, yeah, her career really just sort of like fell off the map mm-hmm. after the 90s, right? And I mean, she sort of became like tabloid fodder, right? After she and Bruce Willis, you know, got divorced and they had all their daughters. And then she started dating Ashton Kutcher. I mean, that's really what her life was like at that point. After striptease, basically Jennifer Conley stole her career. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so I also like Jennifer Conley too, though. So yeah, I I think to me more in this movie is is good. And I, I think... As many times as I watched this movie as a like a younger teenager, I really discounted her work. It was all about like Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg and sort of the fantasy around the movie. And watching this as an adult, I really identified a lot with the character of Molly and Demi Moore's portrayal. I thought that she did a very good job. And I wish that people sort of recognized that more in the past. I, I realized that she became a bankable star, but I think that she did a, a really good acting job in this particular movie. It's also interesting doing The Shining and then looking at this and you like comparing the character of like Shelley Duvall played yeah. compared to the character that Demi Moore plays in this film and how they both kind of deal with this trauma mm-hmm. in different ways. And I know Ebert calls her a slow study, but I don't agree with that whatsoever. Yeah, no, I don't. Um, right? I think that, I mean, I, I really think that I mean, when she's on screen, she's, she's commanding of it. I think that she looks great right i know we shouldn't like use that as a as a way to describe a performance or anything but let's not forget how iconic her fucking haircut was in ghost right like she was really playing a woman that people had never seen before she was an artist who you know was in charge of her own emotions and her own life and you know really called the shots in the relationship a little bit or wasn't afraid to question her lover and whatnot it's just, just like a really good quintessential like 90s character sort of before its time i feel they had really, really good casting in this because she did actually have a pretty excellent chemistry with Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg, right? But who she didn't have any chemistry with was very smartly Tony Goldwyn as Carl Bruner. You don't think they had any chemistry? Not really. And I think that was purposeful, right? Like they're not supposed to. It was always kind of awkward and nervous energy, right? Like when he's trying to like, you know, 
<laughs> I mean, I get it. Seduce some Well, yeah. I mean, like, is that that moment where he like spills the the coffee on his shirt and has to take it off? And I was just like, fool, you think that's gonna get Molly to sleep with you? I mean, me yeah. maybe, but not Molly. But I mean, I also consider like, you know, bad chemistry, chemistry, yes. right? No, yeah, yeah. 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 So totally. I mean, I think that I think that she tolerated him as a friend of you know uh sam's and then after his death she needed somebody to sort of latch on to and he was always around he made himself available but that moment where she slaps him in the face yeah. right you know i was just like i forgot that even happened and Such i gasped i was like yeah. <gasps> like i clutched my pearls and i was like oh my gosh she slapped that man. <laughs> hard too yeah but he's a very prolific actor on film and tv and now in lovecraft country really that's so high on my list to watch and having seen ghost now I think I've completely forgotten about Tony Goldwyn, but there's a couple scenes when the movie first starts. And he hasn't aged in 30 years. Really? No. That's like, actually, he's like Paul Rudd, right? At least the picture I saw on Wikipedia from 2015, he looks almost exactly the same, so. I mean, he's cute, and he his fucking cut in this movie. I mean, like, yeah. the first time we see him, he didn't have a shirt on, and I was like, good goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we got uh, Rick Aviles as uh, Willie Lopez. Who tragically died of HIV through heroin use in 1995. Uh, so many of his cast is dead now, including the great uh, Vincent Chiavelli as the subway ghost. One of my favorite ghosts and portrayals in this movie. He died in 2005, also at the age of 57, so just young. as uh, Patrick Swayze of lung cancer. And uh, as just as a side note, there's an excellent YouTube video that I actually shared with you. Yes. Um, that's uh, about supporting actors. And it was an excellent uh, video. And then that linked me into like a little rabbit hole because there's a documentary that came out just before uh, Vincent Chiavelli died uh, of his like um, immigration back to where his family came uh, from in Italy at Polizzi. And the documentary is actually called Polizzi and it is fucking delightful. Everyone needs to watch that. It's like amazing history and just watching him tell story, like listening to him tell stories and watching him, try, you know, speak old Sicilian because his grandfather had taught him Sicilian when he was in New York growing up. There's lots of food in it too. There's right? lots of food, lots yes. of food and pastries and beautiful scenery of Italy. So anyway, if anyone's interested on in that little rabbit hole for Vincent Chiavelli, who has like 160 credits, almost like up there with Christopher Lee for, you know, credits with Batman Returns and he's been in like um, Dick Tracy, I think. He was in a bunch of... Uh, Amadeus, right? Yeah. Belmont. I mean, a bunch of... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Yeah, nest. he's been in everything. Yeah, so you should probably link to that in the show notes, actually, yeah. so people can watch that video, because it really was. He, he sent me the link, and I watched it, and I was just like... I had no idea this man had such a pro prolific career, but I remember seeing him in lots of things. I'm Buffy the mm -hmm. Vampire Slayer. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's in literally everything, but he's really good in this particular movie. <laughs> he just like when the first time you see that ghost, you know, and Sam is sort of like unsure of himself anyway. And when he's like holding his head out the subway car, <laughs> I mean, like that's I mean, like real stakes for Sam. And it's it's good. He's a really good yeah. portrayal. So we've gotten through kind of like the meat of our cast, right? And there's some other names in there, but let's go ahead and go over some of the story beats or highlights that we enjoyed most about the film. Starting with, of course, our opening scene, which is the renovation of the apartment, which kind of looks like a spooky kind of haunted house at first. Yeah, I know. So like I was taking some notes when I was watching the movie and the very first thing that I wrote is this movie starts out like a horror movie sort of right away. Right. Yep. We get that really explosive title card. Ghost. Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then you have some creepy music and it's like taking you around what seems like a really decrepit house. And I was like, wow, this is like a horror movie right away. Like it's really setting up this haunted house type setting. And then they knock it down. Yeah. Along with your expectations. Literally knocking a a wall down and just making their space in that. Symbolism. For real. Yeah. And I have to say, like, of course, we get to see the shirtless Sam and Carl that we've already mentioned. Oh, yeah. But the big takeaway for me is that apartment. I know. I was thinking I am so tired of watching these 1990s thrillers where people are living their best lives in the apartment that I want to live in. (laughs) We need to. Should we have a top 10 real estate and horror movies? I yes, I think so. Because, (laughs) Lord, I would throw the Freelings house in there, too, probably. But. The Freelings house, the apartment in Copycat, that's yep, Sigourney Weaver house. Like mm-hmm. number one or number two, this would be really high up there. Yes. And apparently that's an actual artist's that was an actual artist's uh apartment really? that they filmed in. Yeah. I just I keep thinking back to when I lived in Manhattan, right? It'd be like fifteen million a month to live there. My God. My apartment was nothing like that. I mean, like I th- my closet was in the living room. That wasn't even vaulted ceilings. That was like thirty foot tall ceilings. And well, yeah, they had like stairs leading up to ceilings and things. I was just like, my God, this apartment. And quite frankly, I want a jukebox like so bad. Now. <laughs> I was thinking that too. I was just like, please, can I just have a jukebox? And I just want like one of those little. Uh, you know, roundabout like clay, like vase makers or whatever the pottery wheel, <laughs> pottery wheel. <laughs> God damn it! Why? So you could like seduce your husband? Is that what's going? <laughs> like <laughs> just to have? No, just I, to look at it. I, every night, I can see you like getting out of bed and just sitting there, like looking over your shoulder, hoping that I would come down the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. I, I don't know. Yeah, I really love that apartment. I really love what they were doing with it. I like one of my favorite scenes is when he sits down in the chair and he's like, oh, my chair's here. And she's like, what is that doing here? Right. Like, it's a really good moment. And it made me cry a little bit when I was watching it. This really? Time. Yeah, it was like my first cry. He's like, well, that doesn't go with anything. And he's like, it goes, it goes with me. me. Like, yes, I know. I was like, <laughs> it was my first little mini cry. I was like, what is she trying to say? Are you trash? Like, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, we'll paint it. <laughs> Tramp. <laughs> How do you paint a leather sofa? <laughs> She'll find a way. She's an artiste. Okay. Well, then we get like this, uh, at least I called out in my notes, like there's this weird elevator scene, like showcasing the friendship between Sarah, Sam and Carl and how oh, they yeah. kind of in it together, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's packed elevator and they're talking about like, oh, did you go to the doctor? And like, did you get, oh, and is it contagious? And, so, and Carl's like, oh yeah, it's really contagious. And then they just keep upping the ante in this crowded elevator. What about the rash? What about the rash? Is it not still in your genitals? <laughs> you know, he's in like. The, in the genitals? Yeah. And then you, is it, how does it spread by touch? And then he touches someone. And, yeah. And then, of course, the door opens and they all get out. So they all work on the same floor. I'm like, that would never happen. Oh I know. God. Well, and I was watching that and I was like, oh, in the time of COVID, I was just like, my, I don't think people will be making that joke for a while in movies now. Yeah. Right. But uh, right after that, we get to what is probably the most iconic scene in Ghost, at least the one that everyone remembers. Yeah. The one that's been parodied, right? The uh, the giving hand jobs to pottery with Molly and Sam. <laughs> that is the perfect name for it. <laughs> Um, I remember watching this movie when I was a kid in the theater and then subsequently on VHS many, many times. And I mean, I always felt kind of naughty watching it, you know, it was very suggestive. And and in the beginning, kind of, it's very phallic. Yes. You know, it is very phallic. Both their hands are on it. They're both getting wet and dirty. Right. It's getting, we've got the music on chain melodies going on. My God. And then, I mean, like it is very sexy, sensual, right? It is, you know? And so like for a little gay boy, it really focuses a lot on Patrick Swayze. Right. So obviously they knew they were going to like, you know, push this movie toward women. Right. 
or gay men, as the case may be, right? And there's like scenes of Demi like stroking his stomach and like pulling his pants out just a little bit so you can see like a little down his pants. I mean, as a little gay kid, I was super into it and yeah. I was just like, come on, it's good. I mean, yeah, I don't remember that, but I mean, I, I did watch it this time and I was just like, oh, wow, they're getting pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And but without showing a lot, I mean, they really hold on to the PG 13, right? And it, I mean, it's sexy just enough. And I mean, it really is a sexy scene. Like watching it as a 41 year old, I was just like, my lord, this is incredibly sexy. But I also like know that there's just no way in the world that could happen in real life. It's like such PG softcore porn or something. I mean, whatever it works, you know, for I mean, people who watch it. But I was thinking, like, if I were up in the middle of the night working and my husband came and interrupted me, I'd just be pissed. I'd be like, yeah. God. But all the jokes aside, it's a very powerful, kind of like sensual, important moment in the film because it yeah. really kind of is like the heart of their relationship and how they interact with one another, you mm-hmm. know, uh, physically. Well, and they had just had that scene where like Sam is, you know, sort of, you know, being quiet and, and contemplative, right? And they had that discussion about, you know, whether or not he regrets moving in with her. And he's like, no, right? And we get that first ditto, right? Right yeah. at that moment, right? So, I mean, smart screenwriting for sure. But not too long after that, we get Sam's death. Yeah. I mean, like he dies within the first, what, like 15 minutes of the movie, right? So, yeah. I was kind of thinking, it's like, oh, this is going to be so dated. Like, she's going to be, there's going to be not, not any blood, but no, there was blood everywhere. And I was happy. I was happy to see that it wouldn't date itself that way. Yeah. So, yeah, I I really couldn't remember the death scene all that much. Right. But yeah, it was a, a lot more bloody and gory than I had remembered. Yeah. And um, I really like the uh, the sort of like red herring. Yeah. Right. Where the gunshot goes off and you see him chasing him. Right. And I mean, then he turns around and he's dead. You know, yeah. I was like, that's a it's a really good like moment for the movie. Yeah. And of course, you get to see her in a really good moment of heavy lifting for acting as mm-hmm. far as like how she's because she's having to sit there for a long time asking yeah. for help dealing with it. You see that she's like uh you know in denial and then she's like panicking and then she's dealing you know and covered in blood herself yeah so uh no it was really really done quite well although i i should say like some of the special effects have in this whole movie really have dated themselves i mean some of it looks like it was straight out of poltergeist from 1982 eight years prior but the blue screen is honestly very very good for its time except for almost like this scene where he find, he sees his own body, you can really tell that there's like a blue screen thing going on. Yeah. Because in every other scene, he really would actually be there. You know, the, the actors would just be not paying attention to him, you know, because he's not supposed to be seen. Well, and this movie really tried to, I mean, from what I gather and what I remember, it seemed like it was trying to sort of push these visual effects boundaries, right? So it wasn't too long after Sam's death scene where he's in the hospital. And we get that moment where he's passing through that like orderly's body and you get to like see the orderly's body on like a cellular level as he's yeah. passing through it. And I was just like, I mean, at the time, I'm pretty sure that my little boy's mind was blown by something. Oh, like me that, too. But now know? I'm like, okay, that's just like, yeah. <laughs> like, he, how would he be like, when, when I pass through a door frame, it's not like five seconds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but we're getting to see like blood vessels inside people like where's the light coming from inside these objects you know what i mean i mean they just wanted to do something special and yeah right but we also get effects like that old man who's a ghost like looking at his body and then seeing the white light for the second time like take the spirit so we know what could have happened to sam if he didn't turn away from that light yeah right so yeah i mean like it really sort of like ups the visual effects in that particular like few moments of the movie 
Speaking of special effects, we're getting pretty close to the first, and I know we already talked about Vincent Chevelli and the, and the, the subway ghost, but I kind of wanted to take this opportunity to talk about like that mentor kind of relationship that we get. And it's not that much. It's maybe like five minutes mm-hmm. of the film, but it makes such a huge impression. And I love all of that because Vincent Chevelli has some of the most cool things to say and the most animated way to say it. You got to take all your emotions, all your anger, all your love, all your hate and push it way down here into the pit of your stomach. And then let it explode like a reactor. And it was such uh, like a poignant moment in the film for me. Mm-hmm. I thought like it wasn't like super emotional, but it was just like really interesting, I guess, for me. Like that whole thing of him like learning that everything's basically a mental construct. Do you think that's the floor you're walking on right now? It's kind of matrixy before the matrix. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, yeah. What does he say? Like, you think you're wearing those clothes yeah. and things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's a really good, like, mindfuck part of the movie. But it's also the first time he's really got to interact with a ghost meaningfully, right? So we have that elderly man who sort of, like, you know, explains to him what's going on briefly. And then we have some woman waving at him at his own funeral. And that's it. Right. So, I mean, it's, I think it's really good that he gets to interact with another ghost in a way and learn something from it, something that he desperately wanted to learn. Like, I think, yeah, he was scared of, you know, that character at the beginning, but he was probably more intrigued as to how he was able to break glass and knock things out of people's hands. Right. So, yeah, yeah it was, it's good. And there is kind of a sense, though, uh, of, there's a lot of ghosts kind of hanging around, right? Because there's no less than 20 ghosts in this movie. Um, there's got to be more than that, too. At some of the scenes when they're like leaving Otome's shop and stuff like that, you know, but yeah, like four or five of them have like, uh, I think they maybe about four of them have like speaking roles, and mm-hmm. then the rest of them are like Otome's place and yeah. some other, you know, bit parts. But there was at least 20 ghosts, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot. But speaking of Otome, I mean, um we sort of get like an introduction to her and some of her uh psychic psychic bullshit bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh he hears this music he follows it he gets to otome and um you know we get the first taste of like whoopi and her sort of acting abilities in this movie where she's swindling that widow realizing that you know she can hear sam and sam realizing that she can hear him but this is a really good scene for otome because she gets to kind of have that double take triple take quadruple take you know (laughs) and moment of panic and it's such a great wacky you know high energy performance by Whoopi in this in the scene and it's great introduction to her character yeah it's damn near slapstick i mean the woman falls like through a door you know (laughs) i mean like if there's any sort of like zucker moment in this movie it's that particular scene right i mean it is so physical and um and just a really great introduction to her right so i mean i i like when she one of my favorite parts that i laughed the most at where she's like she's talking to julio or whatever that woman's husband name was like oh he's a handsome man and she's like what she's like well in god's kingdom we're all attractive or something like that (laughs) she's quick to save we're all beautiful in god's kingdom (laughs) it's so funny so she goes through like 15 names or whatever before yeah (laughs) does he know somebody named consuela Maria. <laughs> oh, see. Oh, my gosh. Dios mío. <laughs> Biblioteca. Uh, yeah, so uh, Sam is, like, trying to convince her to go talk to Molly and singing that horrible song. That I oh, yeah, yeah, and drives her crazy and everything. And Yeah, you know, I like that whole thing. Uh, meanwhile, though, like, Carl is trying to seduce Demi Moore. He's doing his damn best, actually. I actually really liked that. You know, and it's kind of a subversion, 
right? Because you're used to, in film at least, you know, the woman kind of pulling a trick like that or yeah. something. But he's the literally the one putting something on his shirt and he's trying to like show off his body to give us kind of like the, the female gaze in a way, you know, for her. And she ain't having it, you know, in fact, she slaps him, you know, but I mean, that whole thing was just funny and uncomfortable and really awkward. And, and I mean, he goes was, in for a kiss too. And she's yeah, like, yeah. no, I can't. Sorry. It is. I don't. But what does that say about his character too? He was just like, oh, if I just take my shirt off, of course, she's going to want to sleep with me. Yeah. Right. I mean, what a douche. But at the same time, I mean, like, take your shirt off, Tony Goldwyn. I'm okay with it. But. Yeah, at the same time, though, it's like, you know, it's not so much of a subversion. I mean, not too long ago, a bunch of guys were getting, you know, caught popping out their dicks for for women that weren't interested at all, you know? So maybe this is like the 1990 version of that, you know, I'm going to show my abs or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, and I, we've already, there were some moments in this movie earlier, I think when like um, Sam and Carl are getting to their office and his secretary is walking by or somebody's like, oh, you're looking good, right? And I was just like, oh my gosh, right? Like in a, a Me Too generation, like that wouldn't fly. Mm-hmm. But in the same movie, we have a man like trying to, you know, show his own wiles to a woman to, to, for the same end, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Sam gets Otome on board obviously and of course there's that whole like convincing back and forth with her and Demi Moore we got some really cool moments of you know her kind of parroting what what Sam's saying in a bunch of scenes but my favorite scenes with Whoopi Goldberg probably in this whole movie are of course the the bank heist well we can't we cannot get to the bank heist without first talking about the the one line that everyone remembers from Ghost right oh uh, yeah you in danger girl yeah mm-hmm. I mean so like everyone remembers that particular moment Molly you in danger girl right yeah. and then the, the the next ditto moment sure you know? yeah. yeah so but you're right i think that like whoopi goldberg really shines when it gets to the bank heist and i wish that would have been like her oscar clip you know what i mean but you know damn well it wasn't so, what was it molly you and danger girl oh yeah okay. like i'll i'll tell her in my own way molly you and danger girl and that's what they would show at every single award show yeah. right but i the the bank heist where she has to go and be rita miller is really her finest moments comedically okay. Yeah. Oh no. And it's, it's some of the funniest in the whole movie really. And they get away with it, you know? Yeah. Cause after I watched this, I watched it a couple weeks ago and then I watched it again last night before we recorded. And, um, I was at work and I had to pick up something to sign and I was talking to my boss and I was like, can I keep this pen? <laughs> I'm just like, of course, no one thought it was funny. I was like, hey, y'all seen ghosts? I'm just like, what's a nice pen? Can I keep this pen? <laughs> oh, I signed the wrong name. <laughs> well, I need another card. I signed the wrong name. <laughs> and that woman who was playing the like the oh, it's bank- gas it's gas, it's <laughs> she really is so funny in this movie i fucking love the 90s the early 90s was not afraid to sort of reward a supporting actress for a comedic performance yeah. right with whoopi goldberg and marissa tomei doing two of the funniest performances in like the early 90s and getting you know awards for it yeah. i think it's very special it probably wouldn't happen that often today yeah Meanwhile, we get the Otome, you're in danger, girl. And that's right. You know, they realize that, you know, Molly had seen her in the bank and she tells Carl and Carl's like, uh, hey, Willie, go, you know, kill off this psychic bitch, you know, who is who has our check, essentially. Right. Is going to get us killed. You know, if we don't come up with this money that she just stole from the bank. And so, of course, Willie uh, and Carl, I think, go after uh, Otome. And, right. um, you know, then we get Sam having to beat off Willie. <laughs> 
And he does. He does, yeah. Because right now he's learned how to affect physical spaces. And he's kind of exercising that power for the first time. He's like writing his name in the hot steam. Oh, here yeah, it's Boo. Yeah. Boo. Oh, yeah. It's not, not his name. It's Boo. And then he's like, he's just uh, poking him, you know, and like moving Pushing things him, around. Pushing him, smacking him and shit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so he like runs out into the street and gets him like crushed between two vehicles. Right. And um, we get a really special like horror moment in this movie right at this particular time the shadow demons that's right there's a juxtaposition between the white light and what happens if you're a bad person right Right. so obviously this this movie is dealing with some sort of like christianity morals and things like that and so as sam gets a white light this bad person gets these shadowy figures to come and drag his soul to hell and there are so freaking nightmare feel like i remember having nightmares about those things and being so scared and impressed by those things when i first saw this movie when i was a kid yeah i mean i was already a horror fan by the time i was watching ghost but i mean it's it's very rare that i would go see a movie that i was expecting to be some sort of like you know dramedy right and have these moments of horror in it and those things were really scary especially as a child i mean like these things are just like a a pig slut whatever those things were saying from white noise right and so yeah, yeah. No, that's what it reminded me. That's where I thought white noise. That's why white noise kind of scared me as much because it reminded me of those those things from Ghost. I think. Which do you think are more effective? I was thinking this while watching Ghost. Uh, the first scene with the shadow demons was most effective. The second, not as much mm-hmm. because it shows too much. I think, and you hear too much. And then uh, I would say the end of white noise, like certain scenes with the shadows when it does the shadows in white noise versus the things on screen yeah. or the audio, mm-hmm. especially the very end where you, you know, this is shadows that exist in the scene. And then at the very end, they move. Oh, yeah. Like, like they were there the, the entire time. Yeah. And that's just something that I really dig in horror is just like mundane objects you know, a mirror or like, you know, water or, you know, Mm -hmm. darkness, shadows, things like that, that you can't escape. They're part of your life. They're part of physics essentially. And they're always there. And like, Hey, is it the shadow of a table leg or is that actually like a fucking demon watching you? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's great. (laughs) I love that they do that in this movie that like the white light uh, or like what is, you know, quote unquote heaven is there periodically. Right. But these things come from shadows, right? Mm -hmm that are in the street constantly. There's always that sort of like, you know, that clear and present danger around you. Right. You're exactly right. And they were just frightening looking. So, and they still are. I mean, I got a little like, there is no escape from those things either. Oh yeah. Grab you and they drag you and there's no fighting it off. And they, I mean, they couldn't even fight. I mean, they grab you and take you. They have those weird little faces. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also like, um, you know, this is moment of triumph for Patrick Swayze. And the audience is like right there with him. He knows how to, He's able to terrorize and, and protect people now with his abilities as a ghost. And he felt so powerless before. And now he has this moment of triumph. And then there's this moment of, oh, shit. Like, this guy just got dragged to hell right in front of my eyes. And that these things exist. And, you know. <laughs> and it was <laughs> is all gonna set happen up to me? Yeah. earlier because that, that elderly ghost tells him. He was like, oh, could have been the other yep. ones. You never really know. It's a know? little piece of foreshadowing. Oh, is it <laughs> foreshadow demoning? <laughs> <laughs> so then that same night, of course, we know that Carl is going to go back and basically kill Molly if he doesn't get his check. Right. And based right. on his threat, and he doesn't have his little yeah. uh, butt buddy Willie to like do his dirty work for him. He's got to go do it himself. 
So having saved Otome, Sam and Otome rush over to Molly's place and have to convince her one last time mm-hmm. and eventually do so by pushing a penny under the door. And he, with his newfound abilities, levitates it across the space. This whole thing is just wonderful, right? Like this whole collection of scenes. This is my favorite scene in the entire movie. It's just perfectly shot, perfectly edited to me, perfectly timed. And again, we have to go back to that pacing skill that he got from doing comedy, right? And so this is just perfectly paced, in my opinion, because you've got that door scene where it's like shot reverse shot with Whoopi Goldberg and and Demi Moore on the other side of this door from each other. This is not a typical dialogue scene, right? No. And so she's pushing this penny into the door and he, he gets it and he levitates it. And then you see it levitating without him. Yeah. And then you kind of see the, the camera go out of focus and you see her and the tears are dropping. She has the penny. The door opens and you have a very specific look on Whoopi Goldberg's face. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is just fucking magic. And I love it. I completely agree with you. And it should be studied. <laughs> I, I, I And I think like just for because we get to see Sam so much in this movie that you sort of forget that he's a ghost. Right. Mm-hmm. Aside from the fact that they're sort of not, not looking at each other or looking in opposite directions. But you really needed to have that moment of just the penny like there in front of her face to just drive home that he is a ghost he's not really there we see him so much in the movie and it's such a good moment and like to me crying is i mean like i was bawling watching i'm about to cry right now thinking about it because it's just so fucking sweet if there's any part of this whole movie because it's it's like no it's that very specific tone that makes me cry Mm -hmm. which is bittersweet yeah. Right. Like the ending of um, Big Fish, you know, like uh, any number of things where it's like this bittersweet thing, like fucking anything as simple as like Dumbo's mother rocking him outside the jails, you know, anything Don't like that. say it because <laughs> I will die right now in a blubbery mess. Fucking Dumbo. I know. But yeah, I mean, like, it's just it's a really good, like really touching, very like sweet and bittersweet moment because she's she's had so much grief. Right. And she knows fully right then. That Sam is right next to her and just gave her that penny. As proof it is, is that he's there, it's also proof that he is really dead, you know? Yeah. And oh, so it's, right. it's that much. It's, it's well, a God, you really did have to make it bittersweet, didn't you? <laughs> it is. You're right, you know, though. it just makes everything, it compounds everything in that yeah. moment for the film. And I just love it. And, and it's just, just so perfectly crafted, those moments. I think that that moment is a lot more touching than the possession that happens right afterward. At least for me. Yeah, but it's like this moment to the end of the movie is what makes the movie. Because if it had ended or done any other way, or if it had gone off course even a little bit, I think this would be kind of a B movie. And it wouldn't have been reacted to as it has. Okay. I mean, I I think you're right. Because then we get to like Roger Ebert's favorite scene, which is, of course, like you just said, Otome's possession. Mm -hmm. When Sam, you know, she gives consent, you know, and uh, (laughs) Sam kind of possesses her body. And then they shut down all the sound. And you see her hand. Mm Mm-hmm. Trembling. Hand, you know, touching Demi Moore's character's hands. And then we get the song. Right. And then they, they have their moment. And all you see is Patrick. And it's so magical. And it's not as well crafted. And let me just say, it's excellently crafted. I'm just talking it's not perfection, you know, <laughs> like the previous scene. But it it, it just it complements the previous scene so, so well. And I, I think it was much needed. And I don't think like the very ending of this film is any kind of replacement for it. Well, yeah. I mean, because at that point, like after the penny has levitated and, you know, they're all in the apartment, the police have been called. They're just waiting. Right. Because she even asked, she was like, what do we do now? And Otome's like, we wait, you know, and she's like, okay, 
I want to talk about Sam some more and I want to know where Sam is. I want to know what Sam's doing. Right. And of course is what the conversation is going to move into. So yeah, I think it's a good moment for them to have sort of a goodbye. Right. So I mean, even if that was their final goodbye, it's, it's good. You yeah. know, but um, I mean, it's sort of like cut short when Carl's breaking into the apartment and he has to be thrown from her body and they have to flee, you know, for yeah, safety. And I thought that was fine too. They get away. They, they do the right things. You're not constantly thinking, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? I thought it was fairly organic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, Swayze does what he can, <laughs> and, you know, against Carl and the gun. And eventually Carl again comes to his own stupidity or panic really yeah. is what it is. Fear and panic because he's fighting a ghost. You know, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Were you like pissed off that people kept shooting at a ghost like they would like something would happen and they would shoot in the general direction i'm like why would you do that i don't understand that was just driving me nuts i guess i couldn't suspend my disbelief enough to that i'm just who would do that (laughs) well he dies fairly horrifically i remember being kind of horrified by the way he dies i love Um, it when you know when i was first a kid watching this i mean oh yeah i mean i i love it when people in horror movies or even horror adjacent movies get no killed by glass you know what i mean like it's just one of my favorite ways to die so like ghost or the omen or like suspiria right like i I really like death by glass i don't know why i don't know what that says about me but it's just one of my favorite ways for people to die in horror movies so (laughs) and this is also pretty fucking gnarly because it's bloody the blood splatters all over him and the glass right yeah it's it's a nice horror moment but i like also the small moments that we get, like even when Willie dies and also when, when Carl dies here, he's not sitting there gloating like you're dead now. You know, he goes, you know, Oh, he's sad. He's sad. He's sad for them. And he didn't want them to die. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to wish them pain. He was just trying to protect. And of course he wants some vengeance, but he's not happy to see that he has inflicted pain or murder, even by happenstance. That's right. He's like, Oh, Carl. I mean, it's all he says, you know, when Carl's dead. And that, and I think that's what keeps Sam's character so good and so pure. pure, yeah. Yeah. Is that, I mean, if he were actively trying to kill these people, he would also have a visit from the shadow demons. Right. So I wonder like if after you're dead, do you still, have to follow some sort of moral compass right you know would it change he got the white light at first but if he were to actively try to kill somebody would he still get that white light you know there's a lot to mine there and there's a lot of ambiguity when it comes to morality right Well, there is i mean you can think about it like once he sees the light once he knows he's dead and is existing really once he sees the shadow demons yeah he knows there's things at stake Mm -hmm. is that fair for morality right is there an even playing field there that's true i remember i remember a scene from um anne rice's memnock the devil where they're talking to you know it's basically lestat on this weird mental trip we don't know if it was real or not to this day in the narrative but he's basically talking to jesus before jesus died okay and satan they're all having a three-way conversation and uh, he's saying, well, it's not fair. Like you, like your sacrifice doesn't really mean anything. And he said, what do you mean? He said, you know, for a fact that God exists, heaven exists, you know, exactly where you're going. Humans don't know. Not even the, the firmest believers know it's you true. do. It's not fair. It's not the same thing. And so uh, eventually I think kind of Jesus disagrees. They agree to disagree, you know, but there's like a weird acquiescence there. And so it's just an interesting subject to mine, but I think that we're not the podcast to mine that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is not like some sort of like the, the philosophy of, 
horror adjacent movies, right? <laughs> but I mean, I it's an interesting thought. I mean, we know? do have a Dickensian proclivity, but sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's it, it. I thought about it too because I thought. You know, watching the movie this time, of course, it really didn't occur to me when I was younger. I was just like, he sort of caused Willie's death. And I was just like, but he didn't, right? He scared him. And it was Willie's choice to run into the street. Sam didn't push him into the street, right? And I was like, well, you know, if if they had filmed it in such a way that he pushed him, you know, a little bit more, I was like, that makes it a little bit They were very surgical about how they had Sam interact with them up until their deaths, because he stopped until about five or ten seconds before they eventually kind of ended their own lives through clumsiness. They have to keep that character pure, right? And so, yeah, I just, I was really thinking about it the both times that I watched it over the last couple weeks, so. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, you know, Carl's dragged to hell, just like Willie is, and then the, the white light returns for Sam, and, you know, we get that, that nice, like, final goodbye to both the, the, the female characters in his life at that point but something interesting here happens i don't know if it's lazy or if it's like i like to think it's because of the light was kind of bathing them they could see the light yeah that that allowed her to not only kind of see his you know spiritual visage, yeah, his visage. <laughs> but also to hear him for the first time mm-hmm. she couldn't hear him before and now she can hear him and of course or to me i always heard him but i mean she could now kind of see him too and so that was kind of a magical moment. I don't know how lazy that was to kind of let them do that. It kind of felt like on the fence to me, but it it was so beautiful and meaningful and everything that I was As fine. As an emotional with it. level, I think it's really good. It was fine. It you hit know? the emotional beat that it needed yeah. to. It 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 you know. I, I think that it. I think Molly had been through enough in this fucking movie <laughs> that the least that she, the least that she could get is to like hear Sam. It'd be hilarious if she's like, oh, I can see, but she but he's moving his mouth and she can't hear. Him. <laughs> She's like, what? What? (laughs) Speak louder. (laughs) And he's just like, gets frustrated and turns and walks away in the light. (laughs) The end. But uh, yeah, like Otome really takes a back seat in this moment too. Like she lets them have their goodbye, you know, even though she's done so much for Sam, this entire movie. Right. And so they have that goodbye with Molly, but I'm really glad that he sort of like ends it with Otome and he's like, you thank know, you. Yeah. Thank you for what you did. Right, she did me. have like this weird aside of like, they're not going to wait for you forever, Sam. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> they're waiting on you. I'm on the shed you. I was like, they, they went away the first time. They're going to do it again. Go, go, go. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he he gets to fully tell her thank you, and that he'll he'll never forget her. And then you know, he does turn to Molly one last time though, That's and right. says, "The you know, it's amazing, the love inside. You take it with you." Oh my god, I just can't. That <laughs> makes me so sad. <laughs> oh my god, it's just right up there with that fucking Doctor Sleep line, right? I was like, I see my wife. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah. full, like. <laughs> Like, don't worry, you know, like, you will continue to love me. I will continue to love you. I'll never forget you. And he's like, see you. Right. Mm-hmm. What a good emotional ending for this movie. I have like a fucking tear in my eye right now. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm so happy. Well, that's the kind of movie it is. And it was just so well done. So well paced and edited and written in such a way that made it everything kind of come together the way it did. You know, it's like we said earlier and so many of the actors noted afterwards you know it's like it had that something that you can't plan for you know that it just worked kismet yeah so speaking of uh, helping it work we have to discuss the music of course we've already talked a little bit about maurice jari 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 (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, of course, he, like we said, he did Lawrence Arabia, Dr. Javago, Fatal Attraction. But of course, his music was fairly based on uh, Unchained Melody. Uh, of course, the most popular version being the Righteous Brothers from 1965 that we hear them use in the movie to dance to, right? Mm-hmm. Which is originally, of course, a 1955 music composed by Alex North as a theme for a little-known prison film called Uncharted. I've never seen that. This is Unchained. Unchained. I've never even heard of this movie. Me neither. But can you imagine how happy the fucking Righteous Brothers were when Ghost came out <laughs> in 1990? I mean, like, they cashed in big time on this right and people are still obsessed with that song and i'm not sure they would have been had ghosts not come out in the 90s well i don't know because there's been about mm, i don't know there was like they were like the 15th version or something of that song just between 1955 and 1965 it was a very famous melody yeah and it's so beautiful you know and the the words were right there from the the first film that was written for but they kept trying to like redo it and make it a pop song. The only people that were really successful were the Righteous Brothers, yeah. you know. And so, you know, twenty five years later, it was made into a song that you could listen to in Ghost. It will stand the test of time as far as like songs from movies go. You know, yeah. I mean, like pop songs and movies, people will remember and chain melody from this, right? There's a really good Sarah McLaughlin version I like a lot too. But there's more time between Ghost and now. Right. Than there was from that song. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, quit making me feel old. I feel old enough watching Ghost. I kind of get the idea that Unchained Melody, it may have just come on by happenstance on that jukebox, right? But it seems to me like it's their song. It's played again in the movie, right? Yeah, but but one is in the movie and the other is kind of the audience, right? What do we call that? Diegetic and non-diegetic, right? So I don't know. The jukebox was lit up. You know, in that last scene too. So I mean, I, I, I always, I like to think that maybe Sam. Made so Whoopi has her hand on Denny, and then the other hand just like pushes the flag behind her. This one. <laughs> yeah, no, I love, I love the use of this song in this movie. I think it's great. It makes me sing it for like days. Yeah. You know? But and it's my favorite part. It's like I hunger, hunger. I love that part. It's so good. Yeah, such a good song. Right, so there's one more thing I want to bring up about Ghost, and um, I haven't seen this movie since I was like 12 or 13, but watching it as a 41-year-old, I felt a little like icky in certain places because it seemed just, I mean, a little racist to me. I didn't I didn't get that. I don't know. I mean, it's not, I mean, I know that Odame was making jokes at the expense of a white person, right? Which is, which is fine, but um, I... It seemed like there was a big separation of the races going on, right? Or a very clear line between them instead of like a blending. But the thing that really got to me was the sort of like typecasting of the murderer mugger played by Rick Avilas, right? It seems like they went out of their way to find the most ethnic looking person to play the villain, right? So like we have two white people walking around the streets of Manhattan and they're attacked by somebody. And of course it would be like the most ethnic looking person of color or whatnot and putting two white people in danger. Do you and- think it would have been easier to get some sort of like Italian hitman or something like that for yeah and I, I the more that I thought about it after I watched it the first time recently it was just like maybe it's just a product of its time or whatnot and I mean I know that like sometimes people are cast based on stereotypes anyway especially in the early 90s but it just 
I don't know. It was just like, it couldn't have been just as easy to find a white person to play the mugger or something like that to not make it seem like white people are in danger when there are like different ethnicities around them. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I don't know. Like, I feel like you can, you, we should feel free to, to write characters that are incidentally anything, right? Right around that time, we had like Silence of the Lambs and Copycat and other things, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s and everything else where there were plenty of white guys and you know, white girls, fatal attraction, you know, doing evil things. Yeah. It's right? not that they're doing evil things. I think it's just the moment, like, like th- th- that kind of setting, like walking around the streets of New York in the dark. Right. And then the, the, the person that they're accosted by is, you know, somebody from Brooklyn, not from Manhattan, who's ethnic, you know, not white. Right. I don't know. I just, I felt a certain way when I was watching it and I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it for the rest of the, of the movie. And that happens within the first 15 minutes. Mm. Right. See, I, don't, I just, I didn't get that. I, I would have felt like more out of place, like and more stereotypically like late eighties, early nineties for like New York to see someone with a big bright pink mohawk or something, you know, like one of yeah. those like grungy punky guys from the eighties, nineties, you know, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles style from New York, you know, like being like the the crime guy, you know, or something, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I don't know that I thought about race really, but, you know, b- black and brown listeners, please, you know, message us, call us, whatever, email us, tweet us, let us know what you think and what you felt watching this. Was it like some sort of racial stereotypes that we're going through? Is it incidental? Is it something that you would change if you were remaking the movie today? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm super interested to know that as well. I mean, I was texting a friend, you know, right after I watched it and I was like, yeah, I kind of get these like racist vibes from the movie. And I mean, I don't know if people like noticed it back in the 90s. I don't remember people talking about it, you know, and I certainly haven't heard much of a conversation about it today. But again, I don't know how many people watch Ghosts today. The only know? racism I caught was really coming out of Otome's mouth. Like, oh, you're a white guy, you know, or like, oh, I'm stuck with a white guy, you know, and it's like we think that's funny because that's part of our culture to laugh at that because yeah. we are the majority. We're in power. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the privilege that that comes with is to be able to laugh at something like that. But if if anyone else said that of any other, you know, color of a white person, oh, I'm stuck with a black guy or something that's immediately hateful oh, and racist. Yeah, and it is. It is. But you know what? I don't think Whoopi Goldberg's character meant that in that way. And I think that's the 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 point of that is that it, it's we're living in that context of you know, a very highly contextual racial situation in America mm-hmm. back then, as well as now, where things can be said by different people that are either racist or it's just funny or it's just incidental. You know, so I don't know quite where that lands in this movie from either her mouth or from the eyes of the filmmakers showing us and casting, you know, black and brown people, you know, as not as smart or well off or as criminals or whatever in any given film. You know, let us know what you thought about this particular film. Yeah, I, I, I really want to know. I just I feel like watching this movie that, you know, that they, they found an actor and sort of like maybe even wrote a character to be like immediately, you know, recognizable as dangerous. You it's know what almost I mean? like they found a random Hispanic heroin addict off the street and cast him. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. It's just something that like I sort of like it popped into my head and I wasn't expecting to have that reaction. You know, I was looking forward to watching Ghost a lot, you know, because I haven't seen it in a very long time. And I just I really was not expecting to sort of like have that kind of response to it. Yeah, I I didn't get that at all, but I may have privileged blindness. So I don't know. I mean, well, we'll put a pin in it. And like Chris said, if you, you know, if you think these sort of things about ghosts, we we certainly want to know. So um, let us know. 
But anyway, this movie was magical. It is magical, <laughs> though. I know. I just, I, I do. I like this movie a lot. I very, very much. I just, it's just one random thought that pops into my brain. So, but uh, I'm sure that you have some fun facts for me. Yeah, I have some fun facts. Good, lay them on me. So Patrick Swayze in his long career has said that the pottery scene was the sexiest thing he has ever done on film. Here, here, my good lord, that was so fucking sexy. And I don't, maybe because I'm an adult now, right? And I have a general idea of like romances or whatever, but that is a really fucking sexy scene. And that's like considering everything he did in Dirty Dancing, so. Which was just like, you know, suggestive dancing with a minor in that movie. But this is like consenting adult. Yeah. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah. He's like totally like being some sort of betterist. Jesus. So Nicole Kidman auditioned for the female lead, (gasps) but while they loved her tape, they went with the more well-known Moore of the time instead. So Kidman's tape made it up the Paramount ladder, though, and it led directly to her landing a role in Days of Thunder. Yeah, which was in direct competition throughout the summer of the box office. Which launched her into stardom because she was with Tom Cruise and, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they found out, oh, she's actually a huge fucking talent. That's right. She's not just arm candy. Oh, I love Nicole Kidman so much. So for my next one, Molly tells Sam that he leads a charmed life, right? So this is a line from William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Mm -hmm. Macbeth also claims to lead a charmed life, meaning he cannot be killed. Immediately after making this claim, however, he is killed. And Sam is killed after seeing a production of Macbeth. Writing. (laughs) I love it when Shakespeare makes an appearance in things randomly. Yeah, he already said Hamlet was like kind of the inspiration for this. That's right. So So I can totally see how he would do that. I love Macbeth, too. This is Hamlet as seen through the eyes of someone who made Naked Gun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So when they were filming the chase scene at night in New York City, it was really, really cold. And everyone else was like bundled up except for Patrick Swayze's character, Sam Wheat, since he had to, you know, be a ghost and they didn't want to see his breath. So they had him chew ice. Really? Yeah, they'd have him chew ice so they wouldn't see his breath. Like, everyone's in parkas. <laughs> like, here, have some ice. That's commitment to a roll. Yeah. I wonder if that works. I'm going to try that. <laughs> so when passing through solid objects, ghosts appear to absorb some of the material through which they're going. Jerry Zucker has some difficulty explaining what he wanted this effect to look like. And finally, he just illustrated it by dipping a napkin into coffee. Yeah, I kind of got the idea like they were, it was like a chameleon, right? If you touch something, you're going to sort of become part of what it is. Yeah, like kind of absorbing because you can tell it's a little bit like a physical experience, like they're merging with it. Right. And that's, I think that he he made that color change when he's going through the door, right? To show that it's not a pleasant or easy experience for a ghost, especially since that elderly man was just like, you'll get the hang of doors. Like, it's not as hard as it seems or whatever. Because, you mean, like. Just a few scenes after that, he's leaping through doors and shit, right? So the horrific sounds made by the shadow demons are really the sounds of babies' cries <laughs> played backwards in extremely slow speeds. <laughs> That's exactly how I hear babies normally. <laughs> yeah, like the first time I think it was scary. Like in the in the first scene, it was kind of borderline scary to me, but it kind of takes it out of it a little bit because it's like... <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was neat. I thought like one of the shadow demons was going to be like, hey, you guys. I actually really liked the noises they were making because it was all sort of like grunty and weird. Right. Yeah. And that's why because I was just like, man, they really are just like a slut away from being that, you know, white noise ghost. But yeah, I thought thought it was big slap. (laughs) I really like this, though. I mean, baby's grass. Who thinks of this? It's brilliant. (laughs) So my last one. 
Much to the horror of Jerry Zucker and crew, Demi Moore cut her hair short right before filming and showed up for her first day with a cut we see in the film. She had gone to the rehearsal or to the you know casting with uh-huh. really long hair, which is more of her you know normal look, right? You know, ultimately they decided it was perfect for the character. And so iconic, I swear, like people were talking about that haircut like forever after Ghost came out. Yeah, you never see like I remember that now, actually, that you mm-hmm. mention it, because it was not normal to see a woman with shortcut hair like that that's right i mean so we had like the rachel later on in the 90s and we had the boy cut you know when yeah. demi moore was in ghost pixie cut later on yeah. And, yeah so incredibly iconic and just like different you know she was so different looking in that movie that of course she would go on to be remembered for it it's yeah now i think it just, we just call it the sharon stone <laughs> her fucking hair is everything in ghost though i mean like really i love it those were fun facts especially the baby one i'm gonna remember that for the rest of my life but we have some questions to ask about ghosts like we do for all the movies we deep dive into. And we will start with, is Ghost a horror movie or would you call it more horror adjacent? You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because we talked about this in Dr. Sleep a little bit. We always talk about this, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you can have everything for a horror movie, but that's what makes it adjacent is when it has extra. Right. This has ghosts. It has demons. You know, it has murder, it has stalkers, it has everything a horror movie needs, and even some tone and, and you know, some jump, mm-hmm. you know, especially with that title card. <clears throat> yeah. And, um, you know, but it's just the extra things that made, I guess, for some people, water it down from a horror movie, right? It's the comedy and the drama, you know, and the romance in it that, um, you know, and there's a saccharine quality to it also that's not normal for a horror film. So maybe that's what horror adjacency is, you know, it's just like a normal full-fledged movie but it has all the horror elements in it included yeah. you know i mean i think that's what i would call horror adjacency is something that's like skirting that horror line right i mean it's it's something it's a drama it's a comedy ghost is a suite of genres well that's what i'm saying yeah. is it's not skirting it has everything a horror movie is inside of it it's just got extra stuff too i mean without putting its toe over the line completely to become a horror movie sure. you know what i mean i, I mean like it's not fully yeah, committed exactly we're doubting its commitment to sparkle motion horror. <laughs> perfection i don't know but i mean like obviously ghost isn't a full-on horror movie but i think that it has a lot more elements of horror than some other movies that we would consider to be horror adjacent especially i mean we just last you know february we also covered the bodyguard right and made a a you know argument as to why that was a horror movie and i think this is even more of a horror movie than that one was obviously yeah so i mean we're dealing with ghosts for sure but i mean yeah I think that most people wouldn't consider it a horror movie, right? But it definitely has a lot of like tones. Well, I mean, if we look back at, at how we described the film at the at the beginning of the episode, right? It's listed as a, an American romantic fantasy thriller film. <laughs> kind of a mouthful because it is all those things. It's a yeah. roller coaster and it was meant right. to be. That's right. And I think that's kind of what makes it so effective, right? There's a little bit of something for everybody in this movie, for sure. And it's just, that's why it was effective. That's why it made so much money. Everyone had something to hold on to. Agreed. Were you scared while watching Ghost? Certainly the first time. Those shadow demons scared the shit out of me as a kid, you know? And this time it kind of creeps me out, but not really, you know? Yeah. And I think even Vincent Chevelli's, uh, you know, Subway Ghost really scared me the first time. I have to agree. I mean, I, I remember being scared at some of the death scenes, right? Especially this, those shadow demons. But there's, there's some jump moments in here. I'm pretty certain that as a kid, I probably jumped when that ghost title card flashed on the screen, right? Because I wasn't expecting 
to be scared. I was expecting a romantic film, even as an 11 year old, you can tell from the poster what's going on in this movie. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was, you know, certainly scared then not so much now. So, yeah. So out of five stars, what would you rate ghost? I rated it a four. It's too iconic and, you know, a complete emotional experience to be anything less. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got some issues, I think, um, in between those iconic moments. Yeah. Uh, certainly not a perfect film. You know, it's somewhat dated as well, you know, so I, I have to give it a four. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that 11 year old Robert gave it five stars. Oh, yeah. I'd say back in 1990, I was yeah. talking about it was with Matt when we watched it the other night. My husband. And, um, you know, I think back in 1990, I would have given it a five, you know, even at my current age in 1990, you know, but now I, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's some modernization, I, you know, modern eyes and, and everything else, either technically and, and narratively, you know, some, there's some things going on there that aren't perfect. Yeah. You know, so I think, I think uh, a four is just the perfect spot for, for this movie for me. I also gave it a four star and I, I, I was kind of expecting to go into this after so many years of not having seen it and just to be like, you know, wallowing in how much I loved it. Right. But I also noticed those moments of imperfection. Right. I mean, there, there's really a lot to hold on to and love about Ghost, but it wasn't a perfect movie. And I was a little shocked that I didn't just like fawn all over it when I was watching it. Does it mean I didn't cry? Does it mean I didn't laugh? You know, like it did everything it was supposed to do. It well, just wasn't, it wasn't a perfect movie, right? You know, you reset your expectations. It's a ghost, not a poltergeist. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That is very true. <laughs> There's a very distinct difference between them. So, um, yeah, four stars. I think it's still a good rating, you know, like, Better than I give. No, four is excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So finally, and some would say, most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Ghost? You know, in the past, I might have said Patrick Swayze, and I'm still very tempted. Okay. You know, but I almost just want to say Carl. Mm hmm. <laughs> I'm going all the way with Carl on this one. Because <laughs> I, too, would have said Patrick Swayze back in the day, right? Yeah. I mean, I can remember watching this movie on VHS and rewinding some of those moments after the pottery wheel thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And now I'm talking, I'm thinking about that pottery, the post-pottery wheel scene. Yes. I'm thinking, maybe Patrick. I mean, you know, but I mean, still, though, I mean, like, my God, I never realized in my entire life of thinking about Ghost and remembering it how hot Tony Goldwyn is. He yeah. really is hot in this movie. Schmoozy and douchey, <laughs> but, uh, but hot on yeah. a very like superficial level. Yeah. So yeah, that's my choice. For and sure. we're only talking about service level attraction this time around. That's yeah. right. There's really nothing about like his character. That's like drawing me <laughs> to him. Although I do like bad boys or something. And if he had succeeded in getting that $4 million, that probably would have added a little extra to his hotness. Yeah. But sadly he didn't. And he's dead. He's no longer in Danger Girl. Nope. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Ghost. I'm certainly feeling romantic about it, and we want to know if you are as well. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com, or you can call our hotline and tell us everything you want to tell us about Ghost. At 972-666-7733. 
That's right. You can just call in and say ditto if you wanted to. Please. We will play these voicemails on our next Shooting the Flames episode. And if you head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers, you can become a patron and get all of our bonus episodes over there. And we will say your name on our next Shooting the Flames episode as well. That's right. And in the name of love, this month on Patreon, we are actually covering Pride and Prejudice from BBC. That's right. Um, So many years coming that I needed to watch this movie. It's finally going to happen. I'm sure that Chris is beside himself with excitement. (laughs) And next week, we'll be deep diving into The Loved Ones. I have not seen this movie. I'm super excited about it now that I know how fucking violent it is. So, yay. So go to the show notes and uh, click that link and get that watch to do your homework before we deep dive. That's right. Well, I think it's time to go off into this February night and um, sing some Unchained Melody and have some... (laughs) I was going to see which one of us did it first. (laughs) Sweet dreams. Do a danger curl. (laughs) I keep this pin. <laughs> really? I mean, she had some great lines. <laughs> Sorry, it's gas. It's gas. It's a little gas. <laughs> How Bobby and Snooky do it? 